You, you start off an ego inflating comment to the store manager. Your store looks great. It looks like it's busy. I got to think this is probably the top store in the district. And they look at you and, and they, of course, say, well, yeah, yeah. And and they'll say, we're, we're definitely in the top. And then you say, well, like, so how many stores are in the district? Like 15? And they'll say usually back, oh, no, there's like 32 and we're number three. Then I usually get into, well, you know, are the sales growing? Or are you just kind of floating along? And, you know, have you renovated the store lately? I, I do ask about shrinkage. You know, in the same time, I'm looking up at the ceiling tiles to see if there's roof leaks. Welcome to the Source of Commercial Real Estate podcast, where we talk to the experts in all asset classes of commercial real estate. Listen so you can grow your wealth, expand your portfolio, improve your mindset, and live an amazing life. And now, your host, Jonathan Hayek. Welcome to the Source of Commercial Real Estate, where we discuss all things non-residential commercial real estate, including finding and funding deals, market intel, finding a competitive advantage, and using real estate to live the life that you want. I'm your host, Jonathan Hayek, and today I'm talking with Dean Zhang with Marcus and Millichap. Dean has successfully brokered the sale of over $4 billion in retail properties, 38 states across the country, and leads the firm's regional retail team. He's established himself as one of the top retail agents in the firm, consistently ranking in the top 30 of the over 1,800 agents in the firm. Unique and challenging assignments include the disposition of a 17-property leasehold portfolio during the Great Recession, the sale of the infamous Watergate shops and parking in Washington, D.C., and multiple sale leaseback assignments for Wawa Corporation. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Dean, how are you? I'm great. It's Friday in the middle of summer. I can't complain, John. Nice to be with you. Glad to hear it. Good to have you here. Dean, why don't we start out with you telling us about your background, how you got started in real estate, and what your work looks like today. Sure, sure. So I came right into real estate out of college. While in college, I was in residential real estate, worked at a small shop right across the street from my dorm. It was kind of funny. I could walk out my dorm well, about 250 yards, cross the street, and I'd be in, in my little cubicle. And, I, you know, selling residential real estate in college, highly recommend it for anybody that wants to, to get into real estate because it, it kind of, you got your feet wet real fast, and it, it definitely pays for a lot of bar tabs in college. My signature sale leaving college was a the local beer store we always used to frequent. So leaving college, I'm interviewing with, a bunch of real estate firms. And Jonathan, to, to your maybe surprise, they all offered me a salary. No, I'm kidding. There was, there was one that offered me a salary. It was Marcus. And uh, it was you know enough to, to say, well, that's going to be the easy offer to take. And that was 20 years ago, this past July. And I signed on with Marcus, and was mentored by a, a gentleman that had been in the industry for many years. And we were in Philadelphia and we just started rolling. It was a time before, you know, brokerage was really, really involved in the internet and everything today with technology. So getting going was a lot of fun. It was maps in the back of my car, like many people in real estate can relate to and driving around and looking at sites. 
So I, I find your history of getting started in real estate interesting in college because a lot of people in real estate kind of sort of, I don't know, back their way into real estate. They do five other things first, but mm-hmm. you, you know, you're in college and I mean, it makes tons of sense because you can do it in your free time, you know, as a residential broker, you don't necessarily have set hours. So was when you were in college, did you view that as as a college job, as like a summer thing, or were you like, no, I want to make, I want to make a career of this, and so I'm starting to get experience now. I've always kind of been entrepreneurial. I had a pretty strong and, and profitable grass cutting business with like 30 or 40 accounts, and you know, it was that was great. But I mean, it was it was hard work and hard labor, and it, and that transition to sitting at a desk was was nice, even though I was not paid at all, <laughs> and until you sell something. But the residential world, I, I was really fr- kind of thrown into it. Uh, you know, mentors throughout my life have been the lifeblood of uh, pushing me in the right direction. And this was a family friend who put me on an internship in college at his office. And he, he said to me, you're going to go get your real estate license. And I was like, well, that, that sounds fun. I mean, I guess I'll go do that. And I think that was my sophomore year. And it was just an eye-opening part of my brink into real estate because I was like, you know, just learning the basics. And then I realized, wait a second, I'm in Maryland. Now I need to get a Maryland license. So I went and did that. And it was, it was just a fun way to immerse yourself and be on the front lines. And, you know, with sales always, it's always eat what you kill. You know, we, I, I, one of the, one of the other funny sales I, that comes to mind, I could think of is I was selling a student student's parents a house. She was a freshman and brand new spec house, literally on a three bedroom rancher. And we get to closing and it's like just before I go to graduate and there's no sidewalk in front of the house, Jonathan. And the parents are like, we're not buying this house unless there's a sidewalk. I'm like, well, sidewalk's not part of the deal. Like we're canceling the deal. I was like, you'll have a sidewalk tomorrow. I was like, I needed that money to go to Europe for a month after college. So, <laughs> you know, but that mentality is, is served me pretty well. I and mean, we had to get stuff done still. So, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. 20 years in commercial real estate. So, tell me about what sort of work do you find yourself spending time on today? So, our, our team's business practice involves a couple little different niches. We are very active in the triple net lease space and working for developers and taking their product institutions and exchange buyers. We do some sale lease back work. And then we also have a really vibrant shopping center business. And the shopping center business has a couple different facets of where we're executing for institutional clients on some of their maybe less uh, high quality product. We're also executing for developers on kind of the most common form of shopping center development today, which is two to four, five, six tenant strip centers with high credit national names like a Starbucks or an Aspen, Dental, Chipotle. And, you know, that is a very well-viewed asset clash right now that's being developed all around the country uh, by many different developers. And it's it's really tenant driven because if, if those particular name is tenants aren't out doing deals, there's no center. So those are the different lines. And, you know, one thing that I, I love about brokerage is being diversified because sometimes the net lease business like now 
experiences a slowdown where, you know, buyers and sellers are just on different pages. Meanwhile, the shopping center business, if the deal is priced right, which is usually under a set of pretty quantifiable leverage metrics, it's going to sell. You're not going to have three bids. You're going to have 15. So that business, while down as well as net lease volumes are down, it's probably one that will be back on its legs pretty quick here in the coming quarters. Great. So I want to go into two of those those three verticals. So you talked about that you really focus on the triple net lease, like single tenant net lease, multi-tenant strip centers, and then the sale lease back. I want to go a little deeper into the net lease space, the single tenant net lease, and then the multi-tenant strip. So let's start with just the single tenant net lease space. We know what a what a big impact interest rates can have on commercial real estate. That's that's no secret to anyone. But talk about just sort of, you're the boots on the ground. From your perspective, what sorts of things are you seeing? What patterns are you seeing in the, in the, the single tenant net lease space right now? couple patterns. So I would say, let's talk about first the buying side of things and the buyer profiles per se. Mm-hmm. Historically speaking, we've had a lot of different buyer profiles to pick from in net lease. But that's been reduced recently. So what do I mean by what are those buyer profiles? You've got institutions like Realty Income, Agree Realty, Exchange Right, First National. They've been very active buying single tenant net lease. Those institutions, you've got Agree, which is publicly traded, as well as Realty Income. Different cost of capital structure, different way of raising funds than Exchange Right or First National. For the, the latter two here are groups that are DSTs, meaning Delaware, Delaware Statutory Trust, they raise money from high net worth investors and sell fractional interests of properties. I'm pleased to say that in the last couple of weeks, it seems like the DST market have, fundraising machines, I should say, have come back on. So we're starting to see them reemerge in, as, a, as an active participant in the market. The REITs have been active and continued to be a, active all through this this kind of transitional period with interest rates, but seemingly just moving their their minimum required cap rate out for a triple net lease property almost on a quarterly basis. One read in particular, it comes to the end of the quarter and it's been like, let's increase it 25 basis points. And that's been the, the, the pattern for the last maybe four or five quarters. So those are the institutional side. And we've got two other categories we're kind of playing with as well in, in the triple net lease space. I would say it's just high net worth, family office money, private money that, you know, they've got money in the mattress. If they see a deal, they like the location, the geography, it all jives with them. They'll just buy it to buy it. They'll buy it because they have money in the mattress and they maybe don't want to have that money in the stock market or, or some other alternative investment. What's happened more recently is that pool has disappeared. Now, alternative investments and meaning bonds uh, in particular, money market funds, I mean, if they're paying 5 and 6%, why put your money in real estate and triple net lease assets when we're still selling these things at 4 and 5% cap rates? And, and there's risk. I mean, they're definitely not as liquid. There's, you know, there's, there's more cost involved in a transaction. I'm sure you, your listeners follow my thought process. So they've kind of moved to the sidelines, although I did get a phone call from one yesterday that 
starting to dip their toe back on, which is a great sign. And then we've got the exchange market. And, you know, the stat that's floating around out there as we, we talk now in August of 2023 is exchange, or excuse me, transactional volume across all uh, real estate categories is off sub 70% over the first two quarters versus last year. So if you had, let's just say in a perfect world, seven, 10, 31 buyers, now you're maybe down to three. <laughs> if we're off 70%. So it, it feels that way. Some of the more modern trends, though, that relate to exchange buyers, I would say in the last two to three weeks, we've noticed an uptick in the amount of inquiries from those buyers. Some of that may directly tie to the California wildfires. Many of those uh, exchange buyers were given extensions under the uh, by the IRS for their, their ID deadlines. And while I can't remember the exact date that they were given, it's clear that they're starting to appear on my radar screen. Our, our inventory is typically high credit, long-term lease products. So when you think of a Chase Bank, a Wawa, a drugstore, a Home Depot, all the term with credit, that's the type of stuff we're really focused on selling. And so that's, I mean, that's why those, those exchange buyers often appear at our door. So talk to me about about sellers right now. So it's been said that the only people selling right now are either people in distress or properties in distress. Is that kind of what you're seeing or are there people that are selling just because, you know, for for other reasons? Really really good question because the Wall Street Journal is definitely having a heyday with commercial real estate right now and writing articles all all about them and painting commercial real estate with a a very broad brush. I'll be clear. There are pockets of distress out there. That's obvious, specifically, I think, in the office sector. You know, it was announced this morning, Capital One sold a portfolio of loans, a billion-dollar portfolio of loans to Fortress, which that were specifically office buildings. I think that that is is the handwriting's on the wall. Those values have probably pulled back 50%. And, you know, conversions are uh, the way that the lifeline that office owners are being given right now to multifamily and self-storage and other things like that. But, you know, when you look at the other product types, retail being my focus, I mean, retail is holding up remarkably well. We're not talking about enclosed malls. The journal, I think I, I, I wrote an op-ed, which I don't think it's been sent yet because it's going through corporate review, but I told the journal they need to stop talking about enclosed malls. They're such a small fragment of retail that it's, it's just irrelevant anymore. And the huge majority of retail, open air centers, grocery anchorage centers, large format, unanchored strips, it's healthy. It's great. In fact, occupancy is at all time high. Rent growth nationally has been exceptional over the last three to four years. So retail's fine. Apartments, rents are still growing from what I'm reading. Self-storage, A-OK, you know, checking a lot of boxes. I'm probably missing a couple categories here that I, I can't really speak to as well, but I think the distress is very pocketed. One thing, though, to kind of put a bow around retail, it, it seems in the single tenant at least space, which our focus of our discussion here, there's probably been a, a it's hard to quantify exactly, but a significant increase in the amount of inventory on market. However, the inventory that's on market, Jonathan, it really, it it's not great inventory. And when 
you know, you have a buyer show up at your doorstep that says, I want to buy a high quality, high credit ground lease. You know, let's think of the Chick-fil-A's, the McDonald's, even the big four bank. You go out and hunt the eastern half of the United States for that in the two to four million dollar price range. You're not going to find much. So I think that the oversupply is maybe, how should I say, overplayed. It's a, it's a lot of eh, great, not so great properties. And, you know, one of my colleagues, Barry Wolf, cloned this term uh, commodity deal. And I think it's a, a very, very good term for a single tenant net lease property that's just kind of run of the mill. It's nothing special. And those are very hard to move today. So talk to me about the tension then, because I'm coming from it as, as, a, as a value-add investor. And so I hear about these properties that you say are, you know, it's tough to move. But then I look at the cap rates that they're being offered at. And yes. I'm like, well, of course, it, it doesn't make sense at, the, at, at this cap rate. So, you know, why, why is stuff still being brought to market at such a low cap rate? You know, sometimes, you know, you know, if you can get financing at seven or seven and a half percent, stuff is coming to market at six or six and a half percent. And an investor like me is saying like, you know, th- this just doesn't make sense. So talk to me about the tension, like how the the quality stuff isn't coming to market for sale. And the buyers, the quality buyers, the institutional buyers are also not super active right now. So can you talk to me about, you know, what's, what's going to give... Well, first, do I do I have that summarized correctly? And then second, you know, what's going to give to get volume back up? What's going to give? Boy, those are now now we're getting to the harder questions as we get into this. <laughs> so, I th- I think that you've got you know a little bit of like we we need price discovery to play out, and I think we're getting price discovery finally. That's I think a, a key element. There there's the transaction numbers that you know are being bantered about. I mean, you know, we we obviously have gone in a, into a correction. We went into a correction because we were really so far tilted on the yield sale yield scale in, in terms of historical yields for real estate. We were beyond a low cap rates. I mean, you know, I, I mean, we're seeing threes and fours, and this was nothing. You know, this was not Santa Monica. So what will give? I th- my hypothesis on that is, is somewhat simple to lay out. I think we're starting to see the early signs that private investors are realizing this period of getting five to, you know, call it 5%-ish in relatively risk-free investments has a finite lifetime. And, and it's going to disappear. And it's going to disappear in, I mean, you could speculate six months, 12 months, not sure. But meanwhile, net lease cap rates have probably come up 50 basis points or so, maybe more, of course, more in some sectors and such. But if you can, if you can call the bottom, <laughs> like we'd all like to, and, and, and buy, you know, a high, buy a, an investment grade credit, with a 10 plus or a 15 year-ish lease for around 6%, I think on a long-term play, you're gonna head, you're gonna end up, especially if that lease has rent growth, you're gonna end up ahead of the curve. 
because I think the vision is long-term interest rates will come down. Of course, as I say that, the 10-year treasury hits a 25-year high or something like that. So don't know really what's going on there. But the, you know, the, my better thought is, is that we're going to see some of the private capital come off the sidelines. Hopefully that'll also increase the number of exchange buyers out there. And we'll get back to some form of, of a happy medium market. It's not going to be like 2021 and 22, which, by the way, were the best of my career and many in, in the industry. But I think we'll have a, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll have discovery. And, you know, frankly, all we need is just stability. If, if, if we knew interest rates were going to be five and a half to 6% for the next year, we could do deals. And I mean, you could get to the finish line. You wouldn't have to worry about tying up a deal. And you go to close and your bank says, oh, sorry, got to up that rate to, you know, up that rate 25 basis points. That stuff's happening right now. And that's, it's cratering a lot of transactions. And I I don't mean to put you on the spot and, and force you to tell the future. I mean, the future is anybody's guess right now. If if anyone had a crystal ball and we knew where interest rates were going to be in 6, 12, or 24 months, we'd be making different decisions. But the truth is, <laughs> you know, our we can only really look in hindsight. And two years from now, we'll look back on this time and say, shoulda, woulda, coulda. But at this moment, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it seems like in the interest rate sector, we are hopefully plateauing to an extent. And, and I think in my opinion, a lot of what's driving some of the stagnation in the in the commercial real estate market is the uncertainty and buyers like myself not knowing where interest rates are going to be. If I, you know, get a three or five year term right now, when I have to refinance in three or five years, what's my rate going to be? Well, I I don't know. I would I would like to think it's going to be lower, but I I really don't know if I can say that with a with a high degree of confidence right now. So talk to me about buyers. I'm a buyer. I'm in a 1031 exchange right now. I'm looking for deals and I'm always looking for a discount. So talk to me about uh, buyer sentiment. Are you getting buyers looking for distress? I assume I had one broker tell me recently, buyers are always looking for distress. And so is is that your experience? And are they are they finding it? Are you finding lowball offers getting you know getting any traction or are sellers staying pretty put you know staying staying put in their pricing what's your experience there it's really all across the board i think and asset quality is kind of the defining factor so that's what i've noticed the you know the the story that i would tell you is kind of funny i was somehow got onto someone's email list that they would email you and simply say dear dean i'm going to I have interested in your property at XYZ Broad Street in uh, Richmond, Virginia. I want to write you an offer. However, the offer will be half of your asking price. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was getting like these emails from various people with that same line every day. And, and this was like in the last couple of months. And finally, I started replying to them like, take me off your list. I think that gives you an idea into the idea. It gives you some foresight into the view that there is perception of distress, but I would more so frame it, at least within the net lease market, as when you have a commodity deal, you're, you, as a broker, have a seller that's either going to take the property off the market 
or they're going to they're going to capitulate to what the current market conditions are. And what's unfortunate is with some of the clients we've worked with recently, you know, you start out at a six cap and you work the deal and you bring them in a six and a quarter and they say, no, thanks. And you they say, keep working. And you go 30 days, 45 days longer. You bring them in a six and a half cap and they say, no, thanks. You go another 45 days. You bring them in a six, 675 cap. They say, no, thanks. And then you get the same. Then they call you 30 days later and say, well, go get me that six and a quarter cap. And you're like, no, it's now a seven cap. So it's, you know, I think turn that around, Jonathan. You're the exchange buyer. Look, you're in the driver's seat. You can definitely pick the best real estate you want. And I mean, as of yesterday, I had a big exchange roll in through a broker. Uh, he's my new best friend. He had like 30 million bucks to spend. And I mean, I was like, I'm going to ship you wine and flowers and chocolates. So we we tidy up one deal. I mean, his buyer negotiated 15 basis points off ask price. And I was like, this is amazing. My client was so happy. I'm thinking he he, he called me and was like giving me good jobs, high fives, everything. So, <laughs> and I mean, I was excited. This has been a challenging year. I mean, so <laughs> I get the phone call or the email last night from that same broker. My buddy has got now got his wine and flowers and, and uh, chocolates at his house in hand. And he goes, I'm sorry, but your deal's now in second place. You know, it's not going to work out. And I, and I wrote him back. And I was like, what do you mean? What, what do we got to do to get in first place? And he's like, well, you probably have to be a five and a half cap. And I was laughing. I was thinking, in the back of my mind, yeah, we would do a five and a half cap any day of the week. It was only a 515 cap. So with a five cap ask. So that's you. So to wrap that story into a nutshell, what does that tell you if you're an exchange buyer? It tells me that you go out into the market and the bid and the ask are really far apart. And the ultimate take is hardly what is being advertised today. And I've told this to many people, like you if you see a property as a buyer in the market, you need to call the broker up and say, hey, look, I mean, I kind of see the property's value differently, but I want you to keep my number. Because if this guy call, calls you one day in the next couple months and says, I'm going to sell it and I just want to get it done with, don't call one of the REITs, call me. And that's really, if I, I, wish, I've, I, I wish I had more people do that. Although my buddies at the REITs, would, they love me right now because Selling, selling, selling them so many deals, but there's there's those opportunities where you have capitulation in today's market for those commodity deals, and meanwhile the other more high quality assets, the broker is still going to have three to four offers within two weeks, and it might go over ask. I mean, I lost on one last week that it was a four and a half cap, and it went over ask. How I don't know. It's a good piece of real estate, so that's my two cents for you. So talk to me about those deals that are still getting multiple offers and maybe going at ask or over ask. You had talked earlier about quality assets. And so I want to I wanna know from you what sorts of characteristics of these properties stand out to a buyer that make it a super high quality asset that they're w- still willing to pay these really high prices for them. Well, look, it's it's still all about location, location, location. But the metrics of getting into a location are getting much more, as I say, we're, we're learning to quantify them a little bit more. And, and in fact, some institutional groups I work with, I mean, have scoring mechanisms put together now 
to underwrite assets in their particular locations and they give them a score. And if it doesn't have a certain score, it doesn't get an offer. You know, with, with us, we're looking at the placer data. And if any investor listening doesn't know what placer.ai is, you know, ask, ask a broker, ask your favorite NetLease broker. Hopefully they'll, they'll know and tell you. It is cell phone data tracking. And then sometimes it's accurate and sometimes it's not. So nothing beats going and sitting in the parking lot still and counting cars, going to the store and secret shopping it, talking to the store manager. We do this stuff all the time. And, and just getting a handle as to what's really going on in the micro location and the performance of that particular tenant at that location. You know, the typical things, traffic counts, you know, 50,000 plus or minus. Excellent. Great. Demos, three miles, 70,000 plus. Love to see it. How, average household income. That's one that's really become all over the place. And, you know, I would say that when I came into the business, I felt like it was like 80,000. and now, I mean, I'm not sure where to go with it because with the cost of living in different cities, you know, from New York and L.A. and D.C. to I mean, to others, you know, in the D.C. metro, by way of example, an average household income in an area that would be viewed more as middle income might be 150000 But if you take that to the Midwest, that's probably an upper upper income area for, for housing. So we stare at that a lot. I continue to have an investment philosophy around corners, and it's been just preached to me by lots of different folks I've been mentored by over the years. And, you know, corners are always going to be leasable. They'll be desirable, more tenants. It's then all about access and understanding access. You know, the the size of the, of, of the parcel, of course, I mean, three quarters of an acre is kind of the, the cutoff point I think more seasoned investors will focus on you know, basically for the versatility of the parcel into the future, you know, the ability to do a drive-through, not do a drive-through, you know, that's a big deal to a lot of tenants today. So, I mean, it, but I'll come back around to this placer, the placer data, it, you know, it's, we've had mixed results with it and there's a lot of, there are other companies doing it and looking at the cell phone results that are promoted, but you know, I, I, the short story I would tell is I had a Publix deal I was selling for a REIT in Richmond, Virginia. And Publix, uh, excuse me, the, the placer data said it was the last or next to last store in the Richmond market for Publix. The secret shopper guy that we hire went to the site and said, this is the number two store in Richmond for Publix. So who won the argument? Who was right? Well, the, I'd say the answer is in who the buyer was. The buyer was a, a private family that was based out of Buffalo that is now in Florida that may be the largest owner of Publix in the country. So I think that that answers who was actually right there on the on the stats. So talking about uh, placer data, I know access to that software is very expensive. Would, you know, like a family office or an investor looking for this data, does a typical broker have a subscription to Placer or is, or does Marcus and Millichap or your office as a whole have a, have a subscription? If somebody wants access, can they call their broker and say, Hey, I'm looking at this Wendy's. Can you give me the Placer data on this Wendy's? Sure. Uh, Marcus has a subscription of which we then as individual agents participate in. And 
you know, yes, you can call your your agent, and there's a good chance that uh, if the agent is doing a good amount of business, they'll have access to the placer. But I got to tell you, though, it's really you got to have an agent or someone that's an analyst that is able to or to to explain the placer data, because we can spit you out placer data that will give you the about half of the picture, you know. And what I mean by that, uh, very simply, is the store just opened. It's only been open three months. Well, that means you're going to have one third of the traffic count of, of the normal store. So that's not really good data. Your store is 100. No, I'm sorry. You have a 20,000 square foot CVS store. I saw this one. 20,000 CVS square foot store. Well, wait a second. Everybody else is spitting out sales for a 12,000 one or you know 11.5. That's going to be. It's going to skew the data. So you know the devil's in the details on that. The other le- lesson. A very contemporary topic to ICSC and, and my volunteer efforts with ICSC, shrinkage. You know, I had a CVS deal in Philadelphia where the store looked great on Placer. Strong ranking, forget what it was, but it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, I reached out to the guy at CVS and, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're going to sell this deal. want to see if we can tee up an early extension for the buyer. And he's like, yeah, I know your Placer date is good. But we're not going to be there long. And I think that is where Placer is somewhat, you know, we need to get back to location, location, location. Shrinkage in that store was huge. And he said it was huge. And that's why they don't want to stay. So don't always hang your hat on the Placer. And by shrinkage, you're talking about theft, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a huge, especially in urban areas, I'm hearing. There are a lot of lot of retail shutting down in Chicago and San Francisco and, and big cities. You just mentioned Philadelphia, because this is this is a real issue. Going going along beyond Placer, um, you told the story before about the Publix and hiring the secret shopper. You'd mentioned before about sitting in a parking lot, counting cars, talking to store managers. I'm a, I'm a DIYer to a fault. And so when I hear stuff like this, I'm like, ooh, this is stuff that, that I could really do. And I can walk into a store and, and talk to a store manager. Do you, I, I don't know if you've actually done this before, but I've heard of other people giving the suggestion of talking to store managers, asking about sales and how things are going and, and employee retention, things like that. What sorts of questions, first of all, are you upfront and straightforward when someone goes when you you or someone goes into a store to ask these questions and second what sorts of questions do you ask to get the information that you want oh this wasn't on the prepared questions list John. this is <laughs> this is a great topic so my my role which i may or may not be licensed for is insurance sales uh, no, 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 i'm joking i sometimes would act as an insurance agent However, sure, often, an appraiser, or yeah, an appraiser, like that, yeah. but but yep. more often than not, I just go in and I'd say I'm thinking about opening, you know, a business, a non-competing business nearby, and I, I wanted to talk to you about how the store performs because your store, if your store performs well, then chances are my store will perform well. And they say, ah, okay, and I'm like, I mean, look. So then I usually start with a inflating comment. And by the way, I have to give props to uh, Tom Flacco, who's uh, Greenberg Gibbons, who, who is the, the master of teaching some of this course and talking to store managers. But you, you start off an ego inflating comment to the store manager. Your store looks great. It looks like it's busy. I got to think this is probably the top store in the district. 
and they look at you and and they of course say, well, yeah, yeah, and and they'll say we're we're definitely in the top, and then you say, well, like. So how many stores are in the district? Like 15? And they'll say usually back, oh, no, there's like 32 and we're number three. So, I mean, I've literally had that spat back on me by managers. And then I usually get into, well, you know, are the sales growing? Or are you just kind of floating along? And, you know, have you renovated the store lately? What else? I, I do ask about shrinkage and just how that works. You know, in the same time, I'm looking up at the ceiling tiles to see if there's roof leaks <laughs> and things like that. The, I, you know, and, and sometimes I'm really lucky that I'll have a client that will give the, let the property manager walk with me and we'll go store by store. And I've only done that once or twice where the, the, the client said, hey, go with my Robert Jamer store by store. She'll introduce you and you just do your thing. And it made my life real easy. And, and on select assignments, we've tried to integrate that practice into our like preparatory efforts before we go to market. Because if, if I go to market as your broker and the buyer says, well, how are the stores doing? And I can rattle off like Sherwin is 33 out of, you know, out of 60 you know, or some compelling statistics and go right down the row on renovations and things like that. It, it just paints a, an amazing picture of the asset. We had one deal in Baltimore last year that we executed for Continental Realty and they gave us free reign to do that. And it was, it was like, we just, we crushed it on that sale, got a great number for them. And I, I could, absolutely see why the client paid what they did for that property because you just had a really healthy tenant lineup. So I really think that, I mean, the single tenant net lease investors, absent sales reporting by the unit, you know, uh, which was opens up all sorts of uh, information. So many of them just do not get in the car to go see the site. And I, I, I think I've seen a lot of mistakes made for that over the years by investors, because, you know, there's, it just may not catch something. I mean, Street View, yes, we've all gotten really lazy over the last decade. I mean, I remember I started this business, I was flying all over the place looking at sites, but now it's like we Street View it. If I'm putting my money down, I want to go see it. <laughs> yeah, great, great advice. And th- thank you for going into detail because I really try to, you know, nail down on some tactical tips that investors and brokers can get out of these conversations. And so I, I love those questions and how you how you would approach a store manager. Talked I've got just we're we're starting to wrap up here. So I've just got a couple more questions. Talk about opportunity for the value add investor, the family office looking for a discount or just a slight edge right now? How would you advise someone looking for value right now in terms of asset class, location, market, anything? Where do you see value? I think the the easiest place to tap value today is, is maybe, this sounds silly, but is still with brokerage inefficiency. Brokerage can, has, I mean, there's so many different types of brokers some of which are generalists, and especially in the smaller markets, 
I spend a lot of time over the Eastern shore in the Delmarva Peninsula of Maryland. And was at an ICSC event down there and I realized, wow, like if I actually had to spend my life down here as a broker, I'd be playing across a lot of different types of real estate because there's only maybe 20 shopping centers. And that's not going to feed you. So back to brokerage inefficiency, I think that finding some of those generalist brokers or brokers that are not at a big shop, that is an ability to uncover a deal that's not going to get mass exposed. You know, I, I also think that today, you know, though I, I referenced that the internet and technology has really made brokers that know how to use it very powerful. I mean, let's face it, we got LinkedIn, we've got Instagram, we've got Twitter now, X, I guess that's what it is. You know, we've all got websites. There's there's a million ways to promote a deal. But if you catch a broker that, you know, and, and I hate to use this analogy, but it's very true. They're still posting their deal on LoopNet. I, I mean, I don't know a lot of people that go to LoopNet anymore. I mean, now, that was the standard in in my mind for many, many years, for probably 10, 15 years of my career. And it's just now relatively obsolete. So, you know, I think that that's the inefficiencies I look for in single tenant net lease. Adding value in single tenant net lease is, I think, very challenging. I mean, you've got to have the tenant relationship. You've got to have the law, you know, the, the right line. But I think there's a lot of people that have those relationships now. So, you know, I, I do believe that there is value to be added and in, in scale today. So what I mean by that is, you know, we're in a relatively illiquid environment where the average deal size has tumbled this year. I mean, I, I wouldn't surprise me if it's down, you know, 25, 35% this year. And so an investor that has the ability to go buy a deal, maybe, the, you know, let's just say it's 10 million and up today, that's not an easy feat to get financed. There's going to be fewer buyers at the table. When you go way up the deal scale, you know, you've got like realty income out there that's trying to aggregate portfolios and buy, you know, deals that are you know, 500 to a million plus. Yes, but there's a lot of stuff that happens north of 10 million and under that radar screen that I think is really interesting. And if we bring this back to single tenant at least, you know, the pad spin or, or breaking pad sites out of a shopping center is, is becoming increasingly popular by investors as a way to arbitrage a shopping center purchase. And we've even run into now a consultant that helps owners facilitate those pad spins. And she's uh, immensely talented and knows kind of how to run the various verticals that are involved in that municipal, civil, tenant. And, and that's, you know, a, a great service because, I mean, there's a lot of value that can be untapped if you have pad sites still in, in a shopping center attached. So... That's, that's been an exciting part of my job in the last year. I mean, we we get asked to underwrite kind of the, the business plan and lay out the business plan of pulling pads off a shopping center. And, you know, where you've got, you know, a Long John Silvers, which I mean, not the, I hate to say it, it's a less in favored brand, but it, it may be today. And, you know, that's a pad that you would not want to go resell through us immediately. That's a pad you want to keep to get the tenant out of there and then retenant it and sell. So it's kind of, we have, we have some fun doing that type of stuff. Yeah. Oh, fantastic suggestions for adding value, brokerage inefficiency, you know, finding that deal that hasn't been exposed to the masses get, if you can 
convert a deal that at scale, $10 million and over, you know, there's, there could be fewer players at that site at, at that price point, and then looking for pad sites in, in, in strip center. So awesome suggestions there. Dean, this has been great. I've really enjoyed just catching up and, and hearing about kind of your world and the single tenant net lease space right now. If a listener hears you and wants to connect with you, where would you like to send them? Just Google my name, Dean Zhang, Z-A-N-G, and Marcus Amilichap, or that'll take you to one website that'll have my contact info and hope we can help you. We're, you know, we're, we love what we do. We've got a great team and a great staff. So it's a pleasure to serve any of the listeners that could use some guidance or, or transactional help. Perfect. Dean, I sincerely appreciate your time and your generosity of sharing your time and your expertise with us today. Listeners, if you connected with this and you want to learn more, reach out to either one of us. We love talking about commercial real estate and we'd love to connect with you. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. Until next time, take care. This content is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not financial advice, and it is not an invitation to buy or sell real estate or make any investment decisions.